We will be reading the first chapter of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab. Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad. Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Matin, and Matin begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are fourteen generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are fourteen generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So all that was done, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took his wife, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn, her firstborn son, and called his name Jesus. Before we look at Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, and Lord of history, to you we pray this morning, and we say thank you for your love toward us in sending your only son, Jesus. Your redemption plan stretches back in time before the foundation of the world. It's through your son that you have made a way for man to be reconciled to you and to have everlasting life. And through your son, you have made preparations to declare yourself to the world, to a world that did not know you, nor for the most part received you. We see that in John's gospel. But Father, we are grateful that you sent your son. You sent him in the fullness 
of time to redeem man, to restore him unto yourself and to adopt him into your family as one of your own children. And Father, we are grateful for your great love. And as we look at Matthew chapter 1 this morning, pray that you would remind us of our response and what it ought to be in light of Jesus coming down here to earth. Refresh our minds. We pray that you would challenge us, Lord, to see your truth as you've intended us to see it. Transform our hearts. Set our uh, thermostats, if you will, uh, Lord, set them uh, at a fervent level that we might please you in these brief days that you've given to us. Father, much of the world celebrates a baby being born. We celebrate the Christ who became man, who lived and died, and three days later, according to the scriptures, was raised by God's power. For 40 days, he remained here on earth, ascending to heaven to return to his father, doing just what he said he would do. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to see that you faithfully do all that you say that you're going to do. It's in God we can trust. And as a church, I pray that we will exhibit signs of trusting you a little bit more every day. And Father, sanctify us and use us for your glory and for your purposes until the day of Jesus' return. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, we're working through a series called Gospel Leads. Gospel Leads. And in week one of the series, I spoke of the concept of, of a lead. And how it's used to clearly communicate or summarize the remainder of a story. You read the lead sentence or you read a lead paragraph. And you should have a bulk of your five W's and the H, right? Your who, what, when, where, why, and how. In many good leads, you see the main point summarized right there in the first sentence or the first paragraph. It's intended to draw the reader in. To make him want to keep on reading. The lead attracts attention to the extent that the reader wants to keep on going. And I believe effective leads carry the reader all the way to the end. Look with me, if you will, as we begin. Matthew chapter 1. Follow along with me in these first two verses. Just the first verse will be sufficient, I suppose. The book of the genealogy... Of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Keeping in mind our our theme of gospel leads, I'd like you to ask yourself a question this morning. How does Matthew begin speaking of the good news? How does he begin? A quick perusal of the first 17 verses conveys, I believe, a concrete answer to the question. No guesswork's needed. The good news for Matthew begins with an action-packed, attention-getting genealogy. Okay, so maybe it's not action-packed. And maybe it's not what you would deem to be attention-getting. Beginning with a genealogy for many of us, is not exactly page-turning. Amen? For many of us here, it's, it's not typically something that just keeps our interest and puts us on the edge of our seat. What name is going to be next? That's, that's not typically how we respond to a genealogy. Why then would Matthew begin to report the good news of Jesus, the good news of Jesus... With a genealogy. That was a question I was asking myself this week. Why does he begin with a genealogy? Surely he's got good reason to do so, doesn't he? I mean, surely in laying out the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he's presenting something he thought, as he's moved by the Spirit, would capture attention as it pertained to this person 
Jesus Christ. I don't believe for a moment that Matthew said, I'm going to do my best to bore my audience and I'm going to put a genealogy right here at the beginning. I don't believe that to be true. I don't believe that to be true for a couple reasons. One, I don't believe Matthew would have written that way, but I also believe it's true that the Holy Spirit is the one who moved Matthew to put this in place in this spot. Remember that each one of the four Gospels are writing about the same good news. They're writing about the same who, right? We talked about this last week. All four of the Gospel writers are emphasizing and highlighting the who. And the who is Jesus. Yeah, we don't have to be afraid to say his name. Jesus, it's okay. Jesus, Jesus. That's the who. And each of them are writing, moved by the Spirit, concerning this Jesus. John begins speaking of Jesus existing from all eternity with the Father. Goes all the way back. He identifies Jesus as God. He's with God. From the beginning, he was with God. And in fact, he is God, John tells us. He emphasizes the deity of Christ. We saw last week that Luke begins his purpose for writing. His purpose for writing was really, in many ways, a discipleship treatise for this one deemed the most excellent, Theophilus. And he's writing to him an orderly account That he might know with certainty of all that Jesus began to do and teach during his time. And Luke is writing, covering Jesus in his humanity in that gospel. So we have the deity of Christ and we have the humanity of Christ. Both are needful, both are true, aren't they? Fully God, fully man. And then we get to Matthew. And so we ask the question, how does Matthew begin his gospel? As the Lord's moved him to write. Well, the first chapter includes, there's two parts to this chapter. If you don't get anything else, I hope you get these two main highlights. Here they are, the two main highlights. Verses 1 through 17, the genealogy, the book of the genealogy. Or some of your translations, the book of the generation. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. And then the last part is the birth. So you have a genealogy and you have a birth. The birth of the main subject, the main person, the birth of Jesus. Remember we left off last week in Luke chapter 1 with the birth of whom? John. The birth of John the Baptist. Well, we didn't keep reading into Luke 2, but if you do keep going in Luke, you see that what follows on the heels of the birth of John is the birth of Jesus. Matthew here in chapter 1 gives us the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, the birth account, if we look at the text, and we come to understand what these gospel writers are doing and who they are speaking of, the birth account is not typically disputed as a beginning point in the gospel. It seems to make sense. Begin with the birth. Begin at the beginning. Begin when he's born. That makes sense. But the genealogy for most of us is puzzling as we take up the gospel of Matthew and we... We scratch our head perhaps a little bit and we wonder why. I do believe that this speaks, at least in part, to the distance between the writing of the gospel and our current 21st century reader. You see, a good number of Bible readers today confronted with this opening genealogy. They may respond in one of several ways. Let me give you a few ways that people would typically respond. One way... Some will flip the page and will scan with their eyes and try to find the end of the genealogy. Have you ever done that? I'm going to get to the end of this. Now, some folks, as they do that, they may not verbalize it, but they see the genealogy as filler material and not necessary for them to read. Just get me to the good stuff. Now, maybe we've not verbalized it, but maybe that's been a thought. Some might scan the names in the genealogy, pausing briefly, should their eyes rest on a familiar name. Oh, he, oh, yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Oh, yep, yep. 
And we pause as we encounter a name, but really, truly, it's skimming at best. There's a third way that some might read the genealogy. They might actually read through the entirety of the genealogy. They might read all of the names that they can't pronounce, and they might sludge their way through it. But it's done really only to say, I made it through. You ever been there? I, I made it through. I don't know what I learned. I don't know what I got, but I made it through that list. Some might be so turned off by the genealogy out of the gate that they just simply close their Bible. They close the Bible. They count it literally a waste of their time. This doesn't relate to me. Let me ask, when you open Matthew's gospel, how do you respond to the opening genealogy? How do you respond to the opening genealogy? When Matthew 1 is oftentimes referenced, it's usually verses 18 through 25, isn't it? You ever notice that? References oftentimes Matthew chapter 1. You very seldom hear references Matthew 1, 1 through 17. We're going to read today Matthew 1, 1 through 17. No, usually it's Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Because that's the birth, the arrival of Jesus. And I think for most of us here, the birth narrative is something that we're able to digest. But the genealogy... Isn't there another place Matthew could have put this list of names? Did he have to begin this way? Perhaps we've only thought of the genealogy in terms of how it appeals to us. You know, I was thinking of... How many of you have scrapbooks and pictures, old pictures of stuff... Yeah, if I was to this morning have had, and I don't, so don't any of you get worried. But bring in some scrapbooks of some of family, some of the extended family. You know, I know you probably enjoy seeing pictures, and now in the technology world, you probably have them digitalized, and they're on the computer, and you see them all, and they're changing, right, and all this. And pictures of your own family, pictures of your dads and moms, and your grandparents and grandparents and great grandparents, and gra- you enjoy being able to look at that. You enjoy being able to share those pictures with your family. To show them, here's great grandpa, here's great, 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 you know, the pictures that you have. And you're showing them the history of your family. But I would imagine that as much as you enjoy that, if I were to show you pictures of my great, 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 you would be sitting there going, why? Because it doesn't connect as much to you. It's not your family. And I think sometimes we have that mindset as we approach the genealogy. I don't know these people. They're not connected to me. Okay, it's the genealogy of Jesus. I get that. But all these names, I don't know them. And there seems to be, for many of us, this disconnect. Friends, anytime we take up the Bible, it's important to have some level of understanding for the audience to whom the author is writing. Right? It's important. In this case, Matthew, he's writing good news to, listen, to a Jewish audience. He's writing this good news about Jesus to a Jewish audience. In fact, one of the things that you can see as you read the entirety of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel is the gospel that you're going to encounter more than any of the other three gospels. References to, for it is written. For it is written. For it is written. Now, when it says for it is written, it's pointing us to where? To the scripture. To what we know today as the Old Testament. Right? The law and the prophets. The Psalms. For it is written. You see, Matthew, as a gospel writer, he's writing to a Jewish audience. The Jewish audience who had been given the oracles of God, remember. They had the word of God. They were the privileged ones who were given the word of God. 
the promises of God. And they would have therefore have known these words that followed, it is written. This is something very unique about Matthew's gospel. He's writing good news to a Jewish audience. If you open the first chapter of Matthew and had no other reference point in the Old Testament, you might wonder why a genealogy here in the opening verses of chapter 1. But for those who do know their Bibles, for those who are aware of Jewish background and history, you know that genealogies played a significant role in their lives. Genesis, for example, has a good number of genealogies. Numbers has a few. Ruth, did you know that Ruth ends with a genealogy? You keep reading First Chronicles. Hey, you think first 17 verses of Matthew is something on a genealogy? First Chronicles, you come to a screeching halt in your Bible reading because it's nine chapters of genealogy. Nine chapters, not verses, chapters. Some of you are getting ready to read the Bible perhaps in the new year. I just want to let you know ahead of time, when you get to Chronicles, it's coming. Those first nine chapters. It's there. You read the exiles, right? Ezra and Nehemiah, and you see some genealogies. So what we're reading here in Matthew chapter 1, this is not the only place you encounter genealogies. Perhaps there is good reason, after all, for a genealogy to serve as Matthew's lead. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. How it begins. So what purpose does the genealogy serve? And contrary to the 21st century reader who tends to turn away from genealogy lists, Matthew's first century Jewish audience seems to be all ears. How would you respond if I told you that Matthew's audience is attentive to the genealogical lead? They are actually attentive to it. Totally different. The perception is totally different. They're listening. I'd like to encourage you to embrace the value of Matthew's opening genealogy. And it may not hold immediate application for you. But after further review this morning, perhaps it, and you'll come to see this, perhaps you'll see that it it does connect to you more than you think. Let me give you some observations from Matthew's genealogy. I think it's helpful to to just pull out some of these observations. Don't worry, we're not doing a deep dive on any one of the 42 names listed in the generation of Jesus Christ. Okay? I'll give give you a little little bit of uh, overview, observation from the genealogy. First of all, I think there's an urgent identification listed right up front. An urgent identification right there in verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Look what it says. The son of David, the son of Abraham... The son of David, the son of Abraham. Oh, my goodness. David and Abraham, two of the pillars, right? Old Testament, David. When I think about David, I think about royalty. And in fact, isn't it interesting that in the genealogy that's listed here, when you get to David, do you notice what Matthew says about David? David the king. And you know, he says the next line, David the king. He wants us to remember and to know that David was the king. It's important that he says David the king because he's also talking about Jesus Christ who is the son of David. You see, this Jesus Christ was coming into the world and he was going to come into the world to be king, wasn't he? We sang a song this morning, talked about the wise men coming, presenting their gifts, gold, was a gift fit for whom? The king. That's what they brought. And we see right here out of the gate, he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. When I was thinking about Abraham, I was thinking about righteousness. So you can think about in those two titles in verse 1, this identity, royalty and righteousness. Those are the two words that just popped right into my head as I'm thinking about David and Abraham. Remember Genesis 15, 6. 
Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him as righteousness. Abraham, the father of the faith for the Jewish people, right? You read John chapter 8 and Jesus is having this discussion and, and they didn't like a lot of what Jesus was saying there in John chapter 8. They're saying and declaring to Jesus that Abraham is our father. And Jesus is saying, if he were your father, you would do what Abraham did. <laughs> but he instead says, no, Abraham's not your father. They're, you've got another father. John eight forty four. he tells them who their father is, and that is the devil. Because they didn't see that in the scriptures, Christ is to be found. They talked a lot about these scriptures, but these scriptures, they failed to see Jesus. So we have King David. We have Father Abraham, as he's known. And Abraham served as the father of the Jewish people. You know, there were a few scriptures as I was looking through and reading through Matthew's gospel that bring out this element of son of David. I hadn't really picked up on this before. I guess I hadn't really studied the genealogy of chapter 1 all that much before. So this was helpful for me. In Matthew chapter 9, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, we see there's a couple blind men, and they're crying out, Son of what? Son of David, have mercy on us. A little bit later in Matthew chapter 12, having healed the blind and having healed the mute, the text says that all the multitudes were amazed and said, listen to what they said. Listen to this hope in the question. Could this be the son of David? Could this be? A little bit later in Matthew 15, verse 22, And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region of Tyre and Sidon and cried out to Jesus, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Matthew chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. There's two other blind men, and as he traveled out of Jericho on this occasion, they're sitting by the road, and they're crying out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. And then that time in Matthew 21, pointing to the triumphal entry of Christ. You might remember the scene, right? He's coming into town, and he's riding on his donkey, entering into town, and the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to whom? The son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You see, Matthew begins by identifying Jesus Christ as the son of David. The son of Abraham. The one in whom the promises point. The promises over here are pointing to this Jesus who is connected, Matthew wants us to see, he's connected to David and to Abraham. This is the Jesus. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. Right out of the gate, he's saying to his audience, the Jewish people primarily, but also to you and me who are reading it. He wants them to see the connection between this Jesus And the promises, the law, and the prophets, and the Psalms, that all point to the Messiah. Matthew says, first one, this is the Jesus. This is the one. I love this. All of a sudden, Matthew's genealogy just now connects right out of the gate. This Jesus. Look secondly at the genealogy is uh, just, just from observation standpoint, it's connected into three parts, isn't it? Three sets of, of 14. If we do our math, and I'm not very good at math, but 14 and 14 is 28. And 28 and 14 is what? 42. Good, I've got a math person up here that's helping me. That's good. Yeah, 42. So three sets. Now, here's the way we can understand it. The first set begins with Abraham, starts with Abraham. If you read Luke's genealogy, which is in Luke 3, Luke maybe was a little wiser, didn't begin with the genealogy. No, I'm just kidding. Luke, he's also moved by the Spirit. He begins in a different way. But Luke also has a genealogy. Do you know where he begins? Where he gets to, that is. He goes back to Adam. Adam. And that makes sense based on what Luke's purpose is in writing his gospel. Because he wants to point forward Jesus as 
human. He's man. And so he goes all the way back to Adam, the first man. So Matthew's writing his gospel to a Jewish audience. The Jewish audience would have held in high esteem this man, Abraham. So where does Matthew begin his genealogy? Abraham. Abraham. And though he goes with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you remember those names? How many times have you read those names in the Old Testament? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We call those folks the patriarchs, right? The patriarchs. So beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have the patriarchs. Really, that's a good way to kind of think of that first set. The second set leads us up to David. David was what? He was a king. Matthew doesn't want us to forget that because he repeats it twice. David the king. David the king. Begins with David the king. And it goes, notice he leaves out somebody. There was a king before David, wasn't there? Saul. Huh. That's interesting. Saul didn't quite make it into this one, did he? Saul was the man that the people chose, wasn't he? David was the man after God's own heart. David was the king. And so beginning at David, we see this long list of kings. Long list of kings. So we can think about the second section as the monarchs. So we have patriarchs, we have monarchs. And then there's a time when, right around Jeconiah, they're, they're taken into captivity. Remember the story of the, of the people of God? They're taken into captivity. And from around Jeconiah to all the way to Christ, we can see from the exile, it goes from exile all the way to Christ. So this is kind of a way to, to compartmentalize and think about the genealogy as we're looking at it. So first 14 verses, the patriarchs, and then the monarchs, and then we have all the way to Christ, exiles to Christ, the third section. Notice it also starts with Abraham, it moves forward to Jesus, okay? That's just in how, it, how it progresses. We also notice in this genealogy, godly men and ungodly men are listed. Did you notice that? Godly men, there's some godly men. You read through that genealogy and you notice people like Hezekiah, you notice people like Jehoshaphat, you notice people like Josiah, right? And, you, and I don't know about you, but when you read through the list of names and you read one that's, a, that's godly, that jumps off the pages of Scripture, yes, yes, that's a good, yes. And then you read some names that you go, oh, ah, ugh, oh, that guy's in the line. Oh, people like Manasseh, one of the most wicked kings. Amon, Ahaz, these people who did wickedly in the eyes of the Lord. I want you to notice also, just from observation, note the names of the women that are listed in the genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, have, have sort of a background from what we can understand and pull from the scripture in harlotry. We, we see Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. And we see Bathsheba who was entangled in the situation with David, remember? David's, David, his, or excuse me, with Uriah, the Hittite. Uriah's wife. That whole situation. We have these four women listed. Well, what do we learn from the list of names, from looking at the generation of Jesus Christ? I, I think we, we learn a few things. We learn that family history is revealing. You know, when you read through the list of names, we see... Not only these names, but these names are representative of generations. These names are representative of history. These names tell us about what went on in the course of the timeline of history. 42 generations. That's a long time, friends. Family history is revealing. We see dark periods follow periods of light and vice versa. Periods of light are following periods of darkness. We also see how God redeems the years of darkness. We see that God's presence remains even in the midst of some dark periods. And isn't that just like God? Because you see, that also applies to you in your own life because you might be here today and you might have gone through some dark periods in your life. But I think the hope that we have as we read this genealogy is that he's not gone anywhere. He's still there. His presence is with you. If you are in Christ Jesus, you can be assured that he is with you. Holy Spirit is with you and abides within you always, forever. We see the genealogy is, in fact, a picture of hope. It helps us trust in a, in a faithful God 
through all generations. The genealogy is written by Matthew. Let's not forget that. By Matthew. Friends, who was Matthew? Tax collector. Tax collector. Now, hopefully that's probably all needs to be said. Tax collector. Some associations come right to mind. He was also one of the 12 full-time followers of Jesus during his two and a half, three-year period ministry here on earth. Matthew was by trade before following Jesus full-time. He was a tax collector. And tax collectors, as you might recall, they were hated in the day. They were hated because they tended to overcharge their own people. They were employed by the Roman government. They were required to produce a certain quota for the Roman government. Beyond that, they were given some leeway to extract money for their own well-being. Many of them did that quite well to the disdain of the Jewish people. Let me ask, have you ever been overcharged for something? You ever been in a situation where you've been overcharged and you recognize, hey, he... You may not verbalize this, but deep down you're saying, hey, he ripped me off. He overcharged me. The reason I'm asking the question is because the person that's writing this gospel had been in a position as tax collector, I'm sure on multiple occasions, of overcharging people. You know, when we think about it on our end, it's not a good feeling. This is the... the, we start to boil a little bit on the inside. We start to maybe say this isn't fair. We start to maybe have different feelings toward this person who's overcharging us. Matthew was that person whose job brought on disagreement and dislike. A tax collector by title was frowned upon. And you know, I was thinking about Matthew, and I was thinking about him writing this, this book, of this gospel, this good news, and I was thinking about who he was as a tax collector. And honestly, I can relate to Matthew. I can. And maybe some of you can as well. But every now and then I put on a black and white shirt. And when I, it's amazing. All I have to do is put on a black and white shirt, striped, and have a little whistle dangling on it. And when I have a black and white shirt, people immediately change their perspective of me. I'm not a pastor. I'm a bad guy. I'm out to get them. That's what they think. And I can relate a little bit to Matthew. I was just thinking about this whole idea. He's a tax collector. People didn't like him because he's a tax collector. They just didn't like him because that's what he did. They didn't like him. And every night, I go in and do a game. When I walk out onto the court, I know when I walk onto the court, there aren't very many people, if any, that like me. The only people that really like me are my two partners and maybe my son or two that come with me. And I always tell them before I go out onto the court, cheer us on, you're our only fans in the stands. Now, part of that's obviously humorous, but... There's a lot of truth to it. There's not a whole lot of love in the arena for the one wearing the black and white shirt. Look with me, if you will, at Matthew and who this Matthew is. I I, I think it's helpful for us to to see this. Matthew 9, turn with me. Matthew 9, if you have your Bible, turn. And we'll start in verse 9. This is the account. Matthew actually includes the account of when Christ called him. This is really interesting. The one who writes the gospel includes the story about how he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Notice he doesn't draw big attention, fanfare to himself. Praise God. A man named Matthew. Sitting at the tax office. So he's at his workplace. He's doing what he would do normally. He's at work. And he said to him, follow me. Now, I don't know if Jesus said anything else. We don't know. All we've got is two words. Follow me. And, well, and we got one sentence for the response here. So he arose and followed him. Pretty simple. Interchange. 
Jesus comes by, follow me. He gets up from his tax office, he follows him. Now what happened is Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's saying something about himself. Uh, talking, I mean, Matthew is recording this. Jesus is speaking the words. But I believe Matthew, and, and even putting it here as he's moved by the Spirit, it's interesting because Jesus, in those red letter words in verse 12 and in verse 13, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Listen, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I find it interesting that in the encounter with Matthew, we see these words of Jesus. I did not come to call the ones who already think they got it all together. I came to call those who were sick. I came to call sinners to repentance. Matthew records what Jesus said to him. He remembers how Jesus called him to follow and he recalls the purpose for which Jesus came. He came to call sinners, not those who already had it figured out. He came to rescue sinners. He came to rescue the down and outers, the lost, the lonely, the marginal, and the fringe of society, the hurting, the sick. Yes, even the tax collector. Jesus came for that person. So all of a sudden, the genealogy thinking about the one writing this genealogy, the one leading with this genealogy, the one who's concerned about identifying who this Jesus is. It seems that we've arrived at a pivotal link between the genealogy in verses 1 through 17 and the birth account, both of which Matthew opens in the first chapter. The genealogy is a great lead, and provides a a fitting segue into the birth of Jesus Christ. He first shows how this Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, how he is connected to the rest of history. He places Jesus on the timeline of history, showing how all of history points to and connects with this Jesus, this Jesus, one who saves. Matthew knew something about this Jesus who saves. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. So Matthew has first, he has the book of the genealogy and now he has the birth. What does Matthew desire for us to learn as we read the remainder of Matthew chapter 1? I believe he gives us clarity on Jesus' identity first of all. Clarity. Gives us some clarity. Just as John speaks of the deity of Christ, Luke, the humanity of Christ, Matthew is concerned about Christ as king. You can write that down. Christ as king. Christ as ruler. Christ as authority. Christ as savior. I believe he also here completes some details that until now we have not been privy to. Remember, Luke presented Mary and her visit from Gabriel. And not much there is mentioned of Joseph. Matthew provides the perspective of Joseph. And he fills in the details that are left out in Luke's narrative. Remember, we've got four gospel records and they're collaborating together to proclaim the good news of this person, Jesus. In fact, if we look at 18 through the beginning of 20... After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, which was oftentimes done in this situation, he was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, behold, what happens? An angel shows up right on time 
You see, the text provides these markers, and I, in my own Bible, I was underlining these markers. In verse 18, you have after his mother Mary, before they came together, verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, and then verse 20, but while he thought about these things. There are certain markers that Matthew gives us here at the beginning that tell us when these things happened. The order in which they happened. He fills in some details. You see, Joseph at this point, once he finds out that Mary was with child, Joseph is minded to put her away. He's thinking about putting her away secretly, which was kind of Joseph to do so. And then the Lord shows up. You see, God intervenes to let Joseph know what's going on. Praise God. Hey, have you ever praised God when you don't know what's going on in your life and all of a sudden God intervenes somehow, some way, and he makes it very clear to you he knows what's going on in your life. That is an incredible gift. When he fills in the blanks for you, these things that you don't know, and the Lord just shows up, and guess what? This God that I know who is faithful, he tends to show up, not on my timetable, he tends to show up on his good, perfect timetable. That's when he shows up. And he does it right here in the text. He's intervening to let Joseph know what's going on. So what does the angel say to Joseph and how does Joseph respond? Well, first of all, I'd like you not to skip over the address of the angel. Notice in verse 20, he appears, the angel does, saying, Joseph, what's he say? Son of whom? Son of David. Oh, we just had a genealogy. And Jesus, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of whom? Son of David. And I find it interesting that this angel shows up and refers to Joseph as son of David. He's in that line. But notice the famous first words following the address. Do not be what? Afraid. Angels are typically saying that. Do not fear or do not be afraid. There's also this assurance The assurance is given here by the angel. Do not be afraid, Joseph, to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, I got a question. Did Joseph fully understand what the angel said in that moment? I don't think so. But God showed up and gave Joseph assurance that what was going on is sufficient for him to walk in obedience to what the angel is about to tell him. Take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her, Joseph, is of the Holy Spirit. God's up to something, Joseph. He's doing something in her life and your life, Joseph. He also gives a purpose. Don't miss the purpose. Verse 21. She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name, what? Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, the one who saves. He's going to save his people. His people. His people. I want you to think about that in two ways. It is very true that Jesus, in the true sense of the word, his people he saved. He's come to save his people. The Jewish people. I think it's important for us to understand this. I was thinking about the beginning of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. He came for his own people. You know, what's interesting, a few weeks ago, as we were reading John chapter 1, it says in there in John chapter 1 that he came to the world And the world did not know him. In fact, he came to his own people. And his own did not what? They did not receive him. But see, this statement is also true, that he came to save his people from their sins. Those who, this is is John 1, 11 and 12, 12 and 13. Those who believe, but those who believe in his name. 
He has given the right, the authority to become children of God. Believe and receive. See, Matthew leads with a genealogy and he's showing how all history connects to and culminates in the Christ, the Messiah, the one who saves his people from their sins. And he then records the details of Christ's birth through the lens of Joseph. And he's filling in the details about how this birth came about. Now, Matthew also helps us answer the why question in the text. I love this. Why was Jesus coming into the world? Well, yeah, it says he came to save his people from their sins, but there's another why question behind it. Why did he do that? What's the purpose? Well, I think the next verse tells us. So all this was done. Remember Matthew's audience, Jewish audience. All this was done, why? That it might be fulfilled, similar to what we would read elsewhere, as it is written. He did this so that all might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Which prophet? We had the scripture read earlier this morning. Do you remember which prophet? Isaiah. Isaiah. That it might be fulfilled through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, when we read Isaiah 7, 14, it simply says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew actually translates Emmanuel. Now think about this for just a moment. Do you think his audience needed Emmanuel translated? Probably not. So why would he include that? Why would he say that? He's writing to a Jewish audience who would have known the language, and yet he feels compelled here to translate this title for Jesus. Why? I believe it's for emphasis He's saying, this Jesus, in case you missed it, this Jesus is God with us. That's who he is. What was prophesied back here by Isaiah? This is the one. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. God with us. He's here. You know, that's what the disciples early on were saying. They were going to find their, their, their friend and their brother saying, hey, this is the one. This is the Jesus. He's the Messiah. That's exactly what Matthew's doing here. He's pointing it out. And what's interesting is that he was God with us then when he recorded this, and he remains with us. I want you to notice what Matthew does. Matthew chapter 1, we read God with us. If you turn to the end of Matthew, look how he bookends this thought, this idea. Matthew 1, Matthew 28. When you get to Matthew 28, probably when you think reference point, Matthew 28, if you know your Bible and you know Matthew 28, first thing that probably pops into your head is the what? The Great Commission, right? Go, make disciples of all the nations, right? Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you always. You see, he begins in the first chapter by talking about this God with us. And he ends in Matthew 28 by reminding, before he goes back up to be with his father, he's reminding all of us that he is still going to be with us. Friends, that's good news. Well, Joseph responds. He responds in verse 24. He's aroused from his sleep. What's he do? Simple obedience. He does as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took to him his wife. He did not know her. He didn't have intimate relation with her until Jesus was born. And he called his name Jesus. Just what the angel instructed him. Called his name Jesus. And that's the end of Matthew chapter 1. As we think about Matthew chapter 1 in its entirety, I'd like you to think about this Jesus as the one who saves this morning. And I'd like you to contrast it from, from another passage in Matthew. I, you know, I was reminded, and Matthew's gospel is the only gospel, I believe, that has these words. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, and they're crying out for his death, 
Pilate sees that he wasn't going to be able to prevail. And he washes his hands, says, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And then listen to verse 25. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children. This Jesus is the one who saves. The one who saves is the one who has come to take your sin and my sin upon himself. There were people, believe it or not, who said to Pilate, let his blood be on us and on our children. Many of these people, no doubt, were Jewish people. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. We see elsewhere in the scripture that as Paul is writing in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul's heart's desire is that his countrymen would be saved. Paul understood as he's writing that gospel. Really, it is gospel in many ways, a doctrine. It's, it's full, it's rich. And he's writing to them and he's helping them understand there in Romans 9, 10, and 11 who this Christ is, who this Messiah is. He refers to him as the stone. He's the stone of stumbling. You see, the Jewish people stumbled over the stone in their midst. Friends, I'd like to draw your attention this morning as we've looked at Matthew 1 to Jesus as the one who saves. You truly have two options. Believe and receive Jesus as the one who saves, the one who has paid your debt. He's done that at the cross. The alternative is to receive upon yourself the responsibility for your own sin. There's a time coming when there is going to be judgment. We celebrate this time, this arrival of Christ, but there is a second arrival. And upon that second arrival, there is going to be a time of judgment. And the hearts of men are going to be judged, and they're going to be judged based not on what you do, not on how many good deeds you've done, not on how many gifts you've given to someone. It's going to be based upon whether or not you are covered by the blood of Jesus whether or not you have been saved from your sin, saved from this wrath to come. Friends, it's real easy. I believe he's made it real easy from the word. Believe and receive. Jesus, what we read in Matthew chapter 1, he has come, it's Emmanuel, God with us. He has come to save his people from their sins. That's why he came. To not say yes to that, is to essentially spurn and profane his purpose for coming. You're essentially saying, thanks but no thanks. I, I don't need that. And friends, there are a lot of people today who act and operate in that very way. This Jesus is the one who saves. But also remember that Jesus is God with us. He's God with you. God with you today. If you are in Christ Jesus today, he is with you in and through the power of the Holy Spirit who abides within you forever. And that is good news. Hold on to that. Walk and keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit is always going to point you to the things of Christ. And the last thing as we look at Matthew chapter 1, just to put out as a reminder, is that Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the hope for all people. He's the hope for all people. When you read that genealogy, if you get anything in that genealogy, I hope you see some of those names where there's some things that happened in their lives that would tarnish their reputation. There are occupations of people in that list, that genealogy, that maybe aren't people that you would look up to. I do hope that you see the genealogy and see some of those people. There's a lot of brokenness in that genealogy, friends. You might be sitting here today going through some of the same stuff. You might be broken. Maybe it's a different way than some of the names listed in the genealogy. You have pieces in your life, fragments in your life, and you're wondering, how is all this going to work out? I don't know how this is going to fit in. I don't know if Jesus really wants me to be a part of his family. After all, I'm, I'm pretty messed up. Friends, the genealogy serves as a hope. It serves as an encouragement. That no matter how far away you might think you are, God has sent his son to be with us, to be with you, to abide in you now. 
on this side of the cross. Take heart, take assurance, take hope. This Jesus, the one who come, he came into this earth to save you and me from our sins. And we can praise the Lord for that this year, this day. And we can also be about being an ambassador for our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if we know this truth and we don't tell other people about it, what are we doing? He's called us to not just receive it and accept it, but to live this, to speak this, to be a bold witness for his sake. I thank Matthew as he's moved by the Holy Spirit for giving to us another perspective of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a peace that is so helpful. I pray that we would cherish it as we do the other accounts of the gospel records. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good word in Matthew. Thank you for the genealogy. Yes, Lord, we say thank you for the genealogy. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for what it shows us. We thank you, Lord, for the person that you called to write this gospel. This one who was a tax collector, who was despised among men. Lord, this is the one that you called and said, follow me. Father, I pray that we would see in that, Lord, there is hope for every single one of us. Father, there is not one here who is too far away, too far out of reach for the Lord himself to call unto himself to walk with him. May we be encouraged as we read this gospel of Matthew. And Father, I pray we would take hope that we would have the assurance of this Jesus, this one who saves, this Jesus who is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one whom the promises all point. Father, thank you for giving us this word. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.